Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Well, it's been a little while, but we are back and actually, I have another interview that's going to record very soon, so we will, we will be back again soon. So we're not yet uh, back on a weekly basis at all, but we will still have some really good guests from time to time, and today is one of those times. Uh, we have one of the world's foremost experts on human progress, and if you know my work, that is the kind of person that I want to have on the show. So this is Marion Tupi. He is a senior policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and he's editor of humanprogress.org, which is a really fascinating site that you should check out that has all kinds of facts and trends about the actual state of human progress versus what you hear in the news. Uh, So lots of different aspects of the issues that I wanted to discuss with Marion, so uh, I brought him on, and we will cover... Uh, a whole range of topics. So I, it's, it's hard to even summarize, except to say that, um, you know, we're going to learn a lot about what is the state of human progress, what's holding it back, and what can, what can move it forward, and what can we do about it. So hopefully that's appealing. And enjoy the interview, and I'll talk to you on the other side. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We are joined now by Marion Tupi, Senior Policy Analyst at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity and editor of humanprogress.org. Marion, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, listeners of this show know that I'm very interested in human progress, so the selection of you as a guest is is a no-brainer. Uh, I want to go back in time. How did you become interested in the issue of human progress and its connection to liberty? Uh, thank you very much. Um, well, back in 2008, you will recall when uh, the Great Recession started, uh, the newspapers were filled with um, stories about the end of capitalism, end of democracy, end of the West. Everything seemed to be going in the wrong direction. Um, and um, it was right at that time uh, that I came across, um, or, or roughly at that time, that I came across writings of Matt Ridley, uh, the British uh, journalist, who published a fascinating book called uh, The Rational Optimist. And the book was basically making a point that uh, its specialization and trade between people that makes us better off. And um, he fills the book with fascinating statistics uh, about all sorts of things, from um, the, the amount of time it takes to purchase an hour of reading light today as opposed to 10,000 years ago, um, to you know, whatever you can think of. And basically, when I was reading these statistics, I it occurred to me, uh, look, I'm paid to know 
about how the world is getting better. And yet, I didn't know about much of this research that is out there. And wouldn't it be cool to collect as many statistics about human well-being and put them up in one place that people can go to and interact with the data, create charts, send them to their friends, email them, include them in their articles. But the main, main thing we wanted to accomplish was really to bring it all together, bring together disparate statistics from a variety of sources, from the World Bank to the IMF to the United Nations to individual scholars who are laboring away uh, at universities um, and who may have access to a lot of data that other people don't get to see. And so it was the combination of, of uh, my, my desire to, to really spread the word and to spread the data amongst uh, uh, the members of the public and also the dire predicament that capitalism and liberal democracy seem to have been at the same time that, uh, that was at the birth of human progress. And just to round off a very long answer, um, the, the, the working premise of the website is that if people understand that the world is getting better, they are much more likely to support the social and economic underpinnings of Western society, which is to say liberal democracy and free market capitalism, than if they believe the world is falling apart and our lives are becoming worse. So hopefully uh, the, the website serves that purpose. It encourages people to think, you know, life is pretty good. Um, maybe capitalism and liberal democracy are responsible. Maybe they are good things to have. I'm really interested in that premise. I want to discuss that uh, as we go because I think you could argue against uh, that premise, although I certainly would hope it was true. But going even further back in time, so you mentioned 2008, how did you initially get interested in liberty? I'm guessing from your right. accent that you're not born in the United States. Well, that's quite correct. So I was born in Czechoslovakia uh, in Eastern Europe uh, during the Cold War. And I saw firsthand what socialism does, not only to the economy, but also, and perhaps even more importantly, to the human spirit. Um, uh, not only was the country where I grew up and the region very poor, but equally importantly, if you wanted to get ahead in life, if you wanted to acquire possessions or even put food on your table, you really had to compromise some very basic moral uh, moral precepts, including you know the, the way you got you got ahead was really by lying, cheating, backstabbing, um, often by stealing, uh, because of course the shops were often empty of anything useful, and so I always knew as a kid that socialism uh, was a bad idea economically. Uh, because, of course, we were aware that uh, in the West the shops were full and people didn't go hungry. But I didn't realize back then that capitalism was not only economically, uh, economically advantageous, but it was also a moral, that it was also a moral uh, system. And it was only after I read Atlas Shrugged, really, followed by reading Hayek and Friedman, and people like Israel Kurtzner, 
uh, that I realized that capitalism was no, not only very effi- uh, economically efficient, but also a moral system, uh, because there is something beautiful, something very deeply moral about people coming together uh, voluntarily and interacting vol- voluntarily to each other's uh, benefit. So that's really how I came to libertarianism, via personal observation and also via reading some of the libertarian classics, uh, starting with Atlas Shrugged and then, of course, uh, also uh, Road to Serfdom. All right. So to go, I want to go back to the, the topic you raised about the premise of humanprogress.org. So I'm going to play devil's advocate, which in this case, I, I do believe some of what the devil is going to say. Uh, So you could say, if we look at the present in terms of the issue of individual liberty and capitalism, we definitely do not have as much of that as we did 100 years ago or 150 years ago. I mean, we have much more of a mixed economy that is a combination of freedom and controls. And one of the things that people use to argue for a mixed economy is to say, well, look, like we're doing just fine. Like we can, you know, we can uh, have all of these entitlement systems and we can have all these government controls and alphabet agencies and look, things are, you know, things are fine. So now they, so, so with that, that's just one, this is just one aspect of the issue, but is there a danger of too much reinforcing the status quo by just pointing out all the ways things are getting better, uh, is there a danger of that, and could that be counteracted by pointing out all the ways in which things could be way better if we had more liberty? Yeah. Um, well, just from a standpoint of, um, uh, I would say, um, honesty, uh, one has to look at all of these different uh, measurements of human well-being and be com- completely awestruck by how many things in human life uh, are getting better, not just in the West, but also in developing countries. So there is, there is a question, the basic question of, uh, are we looking honestly at the data and what is the data telling us? Secondly, I don't think that it is impossible to make the following argument, which is that, um, well, secondly, there is, a, there is a very important need for positive and negative examples in other words, how do you get things right and how do you, do you get things terribly wrong? Um, Venezuela, for example, is an excellent reminder for people that socialism will never work. And equally importantly, uh, people are looking at countries like Switzerland uh, or um, uh, well, Switzerland or New Zealand or Australia, countries which are more economically free than the United States and are seeing that these countries are doing very well, that they are growing at a faster click uh, than maybe some of the social democratic um, uh, European economies. So, so I think there is a scope, uh, a place for reminding people of the good and the bad examples Uh, and perhaps comparing the United States, which historically grew faster than uh, uh, continental Europe, which is growing at a a slower pace, but also comparing the United States with faster growing economies um, like Hong Kong and Singapore. Third point that I would make is that uh, there is obviously a, a lot of work for us 
people like me and you to remind people that uh, uh, if the economy slows down under the under the weight of debt, uh, under the weight of regulations from three percent to two percent, uh, that is not a reduction of one percentage point. That's a reduction of one third. You know that if if we can return back to our historical growth here in this country in the United States to about three to three and a half percent, as opposed to the current two, everybody will be better off because in the long run, um, you know the, uh, the 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 wealth accumulates at a much faster pace when you're growing when you're growing at three percent rather than two. So um, so that that's just a long way of saying that. We can explain to people why we think uh, the economy is not growing very fast and what could be done in order to make it make it grow again. And that the welfare state really is a drag on the economy, um, as it is in countries like Western Europe, where the welfare state has completely blown out of all proportion. And we can point to Western Europe and say, look, America, is this really where you want to go? So those would be my initial um, answers to your question. You mentioned the issue of being honest about the staggering amount of human progress that has happened here and around the world. You mentioned uh, the Ridley example of you know, hours worked. You didn't mention the specific number, but you know, hours worked to provide uh, light you know, for an hour versus hours worked in the past. It's this staggering differential. What are some other examples of human progress that, that are staggering that people might not be aware of just from following the news? Right. So um, the example um, that really caught my attention was that um, at the time of the uh, early cities, uh, people used sesame oil in order to um, create light. Basically, they burn sesame oil in lamps, and it uh, it took something like ten thousand man hours of labor to produce an hour of le- reading light. Uh, when uh, Ridley wrote his book, it took half a second of work. Was it really ten thousand? Some some so, so, something like that. Um, it was it was really truly a staggering number. Um, so that that just gives you an example of uh, uh, how much how much better off we are when it comes to um, light. But uh, there are many different ways in, in which you can do that. I mean, um, um, uh, movie tickets, uh, sorry, uh, airline tickets are, for example, much lower than what they were uh, in the late 1970s uh, before deregulation, even though we fly further. Um, another thing we did, um, let, me, let me just step back for one second and explain why the late 1970s are so important. Um, because uh, many people on the left, many people in the progressive movement see the late 1970s, which is to say before the Reagan uh, presidency, as the golden age uh, for the American labor movement, for the American worker, and so on and so forth. So what we did at Cato, we um, looked at the Sears catalog, and we picked some of the common um, you, you know, some of the common um, uh, items that you might find in in a household um, in back in the ni- late 1970s and then uh, in 2015, and we divided those prices by the uh, average hourly wage for a blue collar worker, and what we found was that uh, in fact 
common household items have dramatically declined in price uh, over the, since the late 1970s. Um, television sets are now incredibly cheap. Um, uh, cars have become cheaper. Refrigerators have become cheaper and more environmentally uh, friendly, using less energy. Um, uh, so, so even if it were true, which it is not, that wages have stagnated, um, common household items have become increasingly, increasingly affordable even for the poorest people. So that's another example in which, uh, you know, life has, ha has improved. Um, but perhaps the most staggering development for me personally over the last, say, five years uh, has been in the area of uh, medicine and especially the arrival of a new uh, genetically uh, of a new gene slicing technology called CRISPR Cas9, which is about two years old and uh, really is an extraordinary feat of human ingenuity. It enables us to very precisely uh, cut the DNA and uh, uh, enable us to do things like uh, improve uh, uh, crops at a much faster tick. Um, also to eliminate um, illnesses in, uh, in unborn babies. Um, it, it, it's a truly, uh, but also, for example, it, it will enable us to uh, cut the DNA and to alter the DNA of viruses uh, that could be potentially harmful to human beings, everything from HIV AIDS to cancer. So it's a very exciting uh, time to be alive because um, we are getting better at not only improving our lives, but also extending our lives and extending the number of years of our lives when we are healthy. I want to talk about what people call the inequality uh, debate, which is the wrong way of thinking about it because it assumes that, that inequality is, is inherently bad. But let's talk about it from the issue of wage stagnation. So what is the, what is the truth about that? And you indicated that it's not true that wages have stagnated. I assume you mean mostly middle class wages. Uh, and, but if, if it's not true that they've stagnated, then why do so many people argue that they have? Yeah, excellent, excellent question. So um, let's look at the wages back in 1979 and compare them to wages in 2015. If you look at just uh, nominal average hourly wage um, or, or average hourly wage adjusted for inflation, then they are almost exactly the same. In fact, it's one cent less in 2015 than it was in 1979. However, what's happened in the intervening period was, uh, we're talking about blue collar workers, but what's happened in the intervening period is that a lot of non-wage um, benefits, uh, employers started creating a lot of non-wage benefits which before didn't exist. We are talking about massive increase in healthcare cost. We are talking uh, to the employers. We are talking about things like uh, child benefits. Uh, we are talking about uh, employers covering uh, their employees' um, uh, travel to work. Here at Cato Institute, for example, every employee uh, gets a metro ticket um, every month, um, which they can use to get to work and from work. So there was a there, there was a lot of there, there are a lot of benefits which. Uh, 
uh, people did not enjoy back in the late 1970s, which they enjoy now. Now, to 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 put over that, uh, or rather to uh, to um, how should I put it, um, to increase the complexity of the matter, is that it now seems that the wage stagnation that so many people are talking about may be an artifact of um, statistic of, of statistical mismeasurement. Uh, Robert Samuel sent a fascinating article in uh, in the Washington Post explaining that uh, mean wages uh, are being are being dragged down uh, by the fact that uh, so many uh, elderly uh, people are who, who earn a lot of money are now leaving the uh, labor force, whereas a lot of young people who don't make much money are entering the labor force. So once you account for the aging of the population, in fact, the wage stagnation doesn't exist. So there's a lot that goes into it. Now, we are talking just about wage stagnation. If you're talking about inequality, then you get, of course, into the Piketty territory. And I think that Piketty has been rightly attacked for uh, really cherry-picking his, um, his, his data. Do we have time to go into Piketty? If you think it's important, we have time. Yeah. So basically, Piketty, uh, for some reason, has decided that the best measurement of inequality, income inequality, is to look at pre-tax and pre-welfare transfer incomes in the United States. So what that meant was that the statistics which he used in his book um, ignored the fact that the richest people, who of course earn most income, also pays the most taxes. And it also ignored all the social transfers which people at the bottom of the income ladder enjoy. And so um, when CBO looked at the rise of inequality, they found a substantially lower rise in inequality than Piketty. Um, Piketty's uh, statistic showed that uh, the richest 1% of Americans earned something like 20% of the national income. The CBO showed that they earned after tax and after welfare transfers about 12% of the national income. So that gives you a sense of the kind of you know, mischief that you can get into if you cherry pick your data. Got it. Um, how familiar are you with the debates within... Uh, the tech world about how much, you know, how much progress has been made. For instance, Peter Thiel, who's uh, I'm right now in Silicon Valley, has expressed certain strong views that progress is slowing a lot, particularly in the material realm. Other people, and you know, Tyler Cowen had, I think, the great stagnation. Uh, other people are saying that's not true at all. It's moving faster than ever. And I, uh, I saw a debate with Thiel and Eric Schmidt, who's sort of a mixture on this issue himself, but. You know, Teal was citing statistics saying that, you know, I forget the years, but it was something like between, you know, the 20s and the 70s, you had all these major kinds of innovation and dramatic increases in wage uh, growth. And whether we've had any since then, they've been much smaller. And he's arguing uh, that that shows a slowing of progress. To what extent do you think that's true? So I'm not a specialist on this. Um, I would simply say the following. Even if it were true that by some measure 
there is less innovation going on than, say, 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. That still doesn't tell us what will happen in the future and how much innovation there will be in the future. The reason why I think that's important is because we have, of course, been here before. There have been times when a, a rapid development of new technologies was followed by doom and gloom of people making ridiculous arguments such as we might as well close the patent office in, <laughs> in the United States because everything that could have been discovered was discovered. I can't quite remember who the person was who said it, but, but, I, uh, but somebody has said it and written about it in the early uh, 20th century, a long time before we went to the moon and uh, developed solar energy or what have you. My point is that we cannot know what will happen in the future. I am very optimistic. Why am I optimistic? Because, because I believe in the fundament of, of Matt Ridley's observation, which is the following. Uh, human progress is really an outcome of trade times people. In other words, the more, or rather, interaction between people. He calls it ideas having sex. In other words, the more people you can connect together, the more you are likely to come up with um, uh, solutions to, to problems. You know, if, uh, if something staggering was discovered in Europe in the uh, 15th century, it would take three months for it to reach uh, eastern coast of the United States. Now it takes three seconds. And, of course, today we have many more people than we did before. So bringing all of these people together via the Internet and letting them interact, I think, um, by definition, is going to produce much more, um, much more innovation than was possible before. And, you know, I think that maybe potentially Peter's um, focus is very narrow uh, for the areas or in the areas that he understands most. But, you know, when I look at something like the technology, the medical technology, which I have already described, CRISPR-Cas9, um, that is a miracle. Um, and and, and it, it's, it's, it really is two years old and it has a potential to change our lives uh, in, in truly magnificent ways. So um, it seems to me that there is grounds to be for optimism, yeah. So here's my view on some of these issues. Uh, so if we take Ridley's idea, you know, about ideas having sex and, and you know, it's really all about the exchange of knowledge and the, the increasing speed at which knowledge can be acquired and, and disseminated and built upon. Uh, but, you know, an aspect of that and the connection to human progress is to make progress, uh, to be progressive, that knowledge has to be implementable. People have to be free to use it in reality, to take action on it. And that's where one observation of Teal's and one of the fundamental observations of Center for Industrial Progress comes in which is that we live in a world where technological advance is permitted and encouraged in a few realms, namely those realms that are considered to have a small footprint. So that would be digital technology, including software, and then medical technology. But in realms considered to have a large footprint, 
you know, technology and development are widely, widely opposed by the green movement. So you see yeah. this in infrastructure, for example. I'm in San Francisco right now, and you think about this is has maybe the highest concentration of smart people in the world, and they can't get their act together with traffic because you're not allowed yeah. to build anything, and they're actually closing off roads as the population expands. You see this with energy, where the number one form of energy that improves human life, hydrocarbon-based energy, is under widespread attack. You see this with nuclear energy, whose uh, development and advancement was basically stopped in the 70s by pseudoscientific hysteria. So Thiel has this term, uh, and I just keep mentioning him because he happens to say a lot of the things that, that interest me. He talks about atoms versus bits. Like we're, It's very hard for us to move atoms. It's very easy for us to move bits. So you have more and more people in the realm of bits, which is amazing. But what I think of is what if we were allowed to, to move atoms? You know, what, how many amazing things could we be doing? Would we have the proverbial flying car? And, and I think we would if we had liberty in those realms. So for me, it's a huge point to advocate morally that we, it's good to transform nature and then politically that we'd be free uh, to do so because I think we're leaving a huge amount of progress on the table and I don't think most people are aware of it. Yeah, um, uh, when you talk about, you, you're of course a moral philosopher, and let me uh, pay you a, tr a compliment. I watched your in exchange in Congress uh, with Senator Boxer, and I think that what you were saying was absolutely spot on. This is a moral issue, um, which of course she couldn't see uh, at all. Um, but enabling people, especially the poorest and, uh, you know, people who haven't, really participated in global economy before, uh, allowing them to uh, to grow, and they can only grow via carbon, uh, uh, via fossil fuels, um, is is actually very important, not just economically but also morally. So so let me let me congratulate you and thank you for being such a vigorous advocate for uh, these voiceless people. Um, on the broader question, I of course agree with you. Uh, there is a great danger that uh, some of this progress that is being made or could potentially be made will be suffocated by regulations and uh, prohibitions. Um, we see that GMOs, for example, continue to be banned in Europe, even though uh, there is now a complete scientific consensus that uh, GMOs are safe. Europe also bans, by and large, Fracking, uh, which we know has had such an incredible, uh, has given such an incredible boost to the American economy, lowering our energy costs and so on and so forth. Um, I, th but again, once again, maybe I'm just a habitual optimist, but I would see two uh, reasons for optimism. One is that, uh, one is that regulations. Um, and prohibitions can often be gotten rid of if they harm uh, the people who uh, who are generally in favor of them. So let me give you an example. Uh, Washington, D.C. is an uber-regulated, um, uber-progressive city, um, very left-wing, and yet uh, uh, we have, we enjoy Uber and Lyft, even though uh, they had uh, 
you know, they had they had displacing effect for the cab driving lobby here in the city because people just want to use it. Okay, so even though it's a tremendously left wing city, uh, this um, the, the the sharing economy has been given a green light because it it benefits even people who generally don't support capitalism. And the second thing is, um, again, is the importance of good examples. So much has been made, for example, of the fact that a lot of Californians uh, move to Texas to live there because it is a much less regulated environment uh, and uh, you don't have to be stuck in traffic for hours and you don't need to have X number of permits and very high level of taxation uh, in order to in order to live in Texas as opposed to California. So I suspect that over the long run, what's going to happen is that all the all you know the the the, the wealthy and the and the doers in the society are increasingly going to be choosing those jurisdictions where they can apply themselves, uh, create positive change for the rest of humanity and also make some some money in the process. So um, th th that's, that's essentially my point, is that I think so long as human freedom is preserved somewhere in the world, um, it will flourish there and it will show to the rest of the globe that uh, things can be done in a better way. One observation about Uber and Lyft, uh, to my point about uh, you know, invoking Peter's Adams versus Bits thing. It's always easier to innovate and it's always harder to stop innovation uh, with existing infrastructure. So even with fracking or shale energy technology, the government wasn't able to stop it in the way that it, it would have been able to, it would a new technology, like a new, if there was you know, something like drilling in the Arctic or something that, that's considered a new type of thing. And while there was this union situation and entrenchment, uh, you know, that, that's like a moral issue that people, I think, care less and less about. But there was already this physical infrastructure of people drive cars. Now, if they had started flying cars, uh, you know, that would be different uh, in terms of just a new kind of transformational activity. And so what I, what I worry about is just that... I mean, you know, you can't, that's harder and harder to do. Like I think I use an example when I give speeches of, of the meaning of being green, minimizing your impact. And I say, well, if we were trying to be as green as possible, would we have ever turned a patch of dirt and trees into New York City? And the answer is no. I mean, you cannot imagine, no one can tell me that, the, that Greenpeace or Sierra Club would have approved New York City, right? They would have just said, oh, this is sacred uh, wildlife habitat. Uh, we shouldn't do it. So that's, that's my, like how my perspective applies to, to Uber and Lyft. But I, I want to say, in terms of what I think is really important about what you're doing, or one thing that's really important, is I think it's important to always be an enthusiast for progress. So even if we're upset that progress is being held back, it's important to acknowledge and celebrate and embrace and explain the progress that we are making. Because otherwise, it's, it's just always a negative thing. Oh, we haven't made quite as much as we could. But every every little bit counts, and I think once people can appreciate the positive, uh, then it's easier to argue for more positive versus just saying, "Oh, we're falling short." They don't even get a taste for it. So I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah uh, you know, 
this has it's very important. Uh, one reason why I like the work that I do is that it enables me to uh, look at the long historical perspective. The, the historical perspective is vital because it gives you an insight into how human mind works, uh, what is the response to change, and what is also the uh, the likely outcome and um, of disruptive technology. And in reality, disruptive technology uh, tends to prevail in the end. My favorite example of that is uh, Roman versus Arabic numerals. Um, the city of Venice, many hundreds of years ago, tried to prevent uh, the use of Arabic numerals because it, it was employing so many scribes and so many accountants uh, to deal with the city's accounts in Roman numerals. Roman numerals are, of course, much, much more difficult and uh, uh, time-consuming to work in, um, whereas Arabic numerals are much more easy and much more efficient way to conduct business, accounting, and so forth. And so for many years, uh, the city of Venice tried to prevent that, but eventually Arabic numerals triumphed uh, precisely because you couldn't really stop the the spread of progress forever. Um, I'm sure there were a lot of people who were very unhappy when uh, when uh, the typewriter gave way to personal computers, but it happened in the end. And it's really very difficult to think of a techno uh, of a technological breakthrough that was in the end suffocated by the government. Um, you know, once it's out there, um, it it has a very likelihood, very high likelihood of triumphing. What we are really talking about, you and I, and people who think like us, is how many good innovations will never be born because of overregulation um, and because of high costs of entry. I think that's a very serious problem. Yeah. Well, to jump to a topic that I think is related to all of this that you might have unique perspective on, I'm going to ask this in, in the meanest possible way to the object of the question. Why is Europe so bad? In, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I really, well, I, I think about this from two perspectives. One is that people are just insufferable with treating, making up all these examples of European success stories, like, you know, the, the German energy disaster as a supposed success, oh, yeah. Yeah. success story. But in more broadly, that Europe has this moral authority, despite, you know, having a lot of oppressive policies now and certainly having a really bad track record in the last hundred years in terms of, you know, significant things. And America's considered morally inferior. But, but Europe just seems it, always on the vanguard of these bad uh, regressive ideas. So as somebody you know, who experienced the worst of it, or you know, witnessed the worst of it, I'm curious if you have any insights or if, if you disagree with, I guess I, I can't assume you disagree with my premise, although you have to agree with it partially because you're here. <laughs> That's exactly what I was about to say. I, I left Europe for a reason. Um, I, I think I, 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 did, I certainly agree with you that Europeans have a level of contempt for America that uh, that um, that you know is very difficult to understand when you consider 
that uh, since 1900, Europe has given us the First World War, the Second World War, <laughs> Holocaust, communism, and God knows what else. Um, it's very difficult to see where this moral authority, moral superiority comes from, except, I think, it may come from a very base and, to me, disgusting habit of people claiming moral superiority of others and claiming credit for things that have been done by their ancestors hundreds, sometimes thousands of years ago. When I was in Greece about 10 years ago, I have noticed how Greeks like to constantly put down the Turks and Americans and whoever else because, you know, Greece is the birth of democracy. And it is true that if you look at Greece two and a half thousand years ago, um, it's extraordinary. The flourishing of ideas is absolutely extraordinary. Not just democracy, but the uh, origination of mathematics, philosophy, um, basic conception that the world is constituted of atoms. Greece was truly an extraordinary place. What I don't think anybody expected was that the Greeks would still try to cash in on the success of the ancient Greeks two and a half thousand years later. And that is essentially what's what's been happening. Um, and, you know, the French have this superiority complex also uh, because of the greatness that France was in, uh, um, you know, uh, 18th and 19th centuries. Um, so th there is much of that in Europe, uh, that kind of parochial and anachronistic um, view of the world and um, getting self-validation and national validation from belonging to a group that was once successful. If anything, I'd be ashamed if I were a Greek uh, of the way that I, I have allowed my country to deteriorate. Uh, if I were French, I'd be ashamed of the way that I have allowed France to deteriorate and so on and so forth. Uh, I think there is a probably a, 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 a bit of a uh, positive development in, in Britain, a country which, of course, uh, has uh, changed course and is uh, rather more economically free and more successful. But uh, continental Europe, I'm afraid, is truly um, uh, beneath contempt when it comes to... When it comes to um, its failure, really, to build on the tremendous legacy of European history and, uh, and its contempt for the United States, which, of course, came to European rescue twice in the last century alone, three times if you include communism. Well, that's, that's fascinating about appropriating the achievements of the past. It, it connects with what I was thinking, which is the general still a view that collectivism is morally superior to individualism. So the collectivist views himself as a member of a tribe. So if you're in Greece, you view yourself as well. I'm, I'm somehow, I get the credit for Aristotle, which is just well, yeah, re yeah, really I bizarre. Yeah, and what I should have explained when I said that they have contempt for the United States is that they sort of see the United States as a newcomer, you know, a culture, a, a country without culture, country without history. Um, 
But, you know, if you look at, for example, the number of orchestras per capita, United States is doing much better than, than Europe does. Europe has a lot of culture in a sense that it has a lot of museums filled with stuff that was produced by Europeans over the last two and a half thousand years. But it is not on cutting edge of, of, uh, of, uh, of culture and art and so forth today, uh, with the only exception of... Uh, maybe London and and possibly, well, London really. Um, so, yes, they, they do have, uh, they do have this collectivist appropriation and also uh, this uh, rather unfortunate dismissal of the United States, neither of which I share. Yeah, so if I think about going to Europe to experience the culture, it really is going to the museums to experience what used to be the culture. Not and, experiencing and, the current culture. Yeah, and the, and the glorious cathedrals and the music, all of which have been produced, you know, centuries ago. Um, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, don't don't give you. I, I don't want not to give Europe its 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 due. After all, um, you know, breakthroughs, scientific breakthroughs, cultural breakthroughs, uh, especially scientific breakthroughs, still take place. Um, but um, uh, but it is certainly not. What what Europe is used to be? It's not the driving force in the global economy, global culture, culture as it used to be before. That's really fascinating. All right. Well, as we wrap up, any other points about human progress or anything you want to elaborate on that you think we we haven't covered uh, that the audience would benefit from? Um, all I would say is that I encourage people who may get disappointed, disheartened, to always look uh, on, uh, at matters from a historical perspective. In other words, um, you know, the progressives compare today with future perfect. Uh, conservatives and libertarians compare or ought to compare today with past imperfect. Um, and if you look at history and the extraordinary poverty and destitution and desperation, hunger, cold, wars, diseases that people have been exposed to, um, having a historical perspective, I think, must make you appreciate that you live today and really be happy um, that you are alive today and be thankful uh, for everything that we have. And that is really the attitude that I have. And I have to say, and I hope it won't sound too cheesy, but um, I think that it made me a happier person working on this subject of human progress uh, because I can now appreciate holistically um, what a great life I have to 99.9% .9 of people who came before me. And uh, it's a marvelous place to be in mentally and uh, intellectually. Just a, as a plug for a thinker I really like named Dan Sullivan, who happens to be, uh, he's, he's probably the top business coach in the world. He runs a company called Strategic Coach that I, I participate in as a, as a student. And he has this great concept called the gap versus the gain. And the idea is that people who live in the gap are always just comparing their present to an undefined and unattainable future. And that causes a lot of misery. And what he does is he considers his, his present every day to what it was the previous day. So he talks about the gain every day. And if you take the perspective of the gain, 
you're happier and you're much more motivated to make progress toward your goals in the future. Whereas if you're always looking at everything from the perspective of it hasn't met this sort of hypothetical standard of perfection, there's always this gap and it's it's miserable. And he also has a related expression called progress, not perfection, which I, I uh, also like. So I, I can totally imagine how uh, how doing that as regularly as you do uh, would lead to happiness. And I think that the people by checking out the website, humanprogress.org, will find a lot of really fascinating stuff. And also reading your work will find fascinating stuff. So Marion, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you for having me. All the best. Thanks again to Marion Tupi for being on the program. I think it's worth reemphasizing his point near the end about gratitude and happiness as it relates to human progress. Uh, at any given time, at any given point in history, you can always look at what you don't have, what hasn't happened yet, and uh, you know, to a greater or lesser degree, there will always be different kinds of problems, uh, some of which are outside your control, some of which you can do something uh, about. So today is an era where there are a lot of problems. I think in many ways the culture has decayed and, and a lot of my work is trying to counteract that. Uh, but I think overall it's very hard to argue against the idea that this is the best time by far uh, to be alive. And so if we can't enjoy ourselves in the best time ever to be alive, there's, there's something wrong with that. And one way to write that is to really appreciate how far humanity has come and to appreciate those advancements and to appreciate the, the people who've made those advancements possible. And I think that that kind of appreciation will create more motivation to make things better versus bemoaning the fact that we don't have a perfect world, which I think can cause just a lot of inaction. So I always like, I've only talked to Marion a couple of times, so I always is a bit of a, an overstatement. But uh, when I read him, I always enjoy that aspect of his work and talking to him. I enjoy that aspect. He's definitely that way in person. So that's a, that's a good lesson for all of us to take. Uh, I, I want to mention, as I have many times, uh, in a sense, this program is sponsored by the How to Talk to Anyone About Energy. This is the course that teaches you uh, how to reframe any discussion that you have about energy or really anything else so that it goes really well instead of going really badly. And I am now in San Francisco for the next couple months, and this is a place where you can imagine there would be lots of potential for discussions to go badly. And mine have been going really, really well, even when dealing with people you might not expect. So it's all about using the principles in that course to reframe the discussion from the beginning so that it turns into you know, a constructive learning experience where, where people are open to do knowledge and where they're focused on the right things like maximizing human flourishing rather than minimizing human impact, where they're thinking in terms of the full context and, uh, you know, as against just looking at everything out of context. Um, so it's a really effective framework. I use it all the time. I think you'll benefit from it too. And I figure promoting this is a lot better than promoting the underwear commercials that exist on a lot of the podcasts that I use. MeUndies.com, if you, if you get the joke, uh, has not yet contacted Power Hour. And I, I don't think we're going to become a, uh, 
<laughs> I don't think we would uh, be a promoter even if they did. So yeah, check out how to talk to anyone about energy. That's at energychampion.net. And of course, if you haven't checked out the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels or you haven't bought a lot of copies for your friends, go to moralcaseforfossilfuels.com. Now, both of those are very affordable resources. If you want a free resource that we just created, check out industrialprogress.com slash fossil fuels industrialprogress.com slash fossil fuels. This is a two-page summary of the moral case for fossil fuels. And I think it's a pretty good one. And it's a great thing just to, if, if someone expresses interest, just send it to them. They can't say, oh, I don't want to buy a book or I don't have time to read a book or I don't have time to listen to a podcast. Now, in five minutes, they can really get an idea of the framework of the book and some of the most powerful facts that are in the book. So industrialprogress.com slash fossil fuels. And while you're on industrialprogress.com, uh, go to the front page, just industrialprogress.com without anything else, and make sure you're on the newsletter. Uh, also, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Just look up Alex Epstein, and you will be good to go. Lots of stuff going on, uh, some of it in the background, working on a new website. Uh, next couple months, that'll be up, and, and you'll see a lot of new content there. So exciting stuff. And I hope you enjoyed this uh, episode. And we have another episode coming up quite soon. So I hope you enjoy that one as well. All right. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, you can email me. Actually, the best address now is support at industrialprogress.net. That will get to me. Uh, but it will also, if, if your question applies to someone else, it'll also get to them as well. So support at industrialprogress.net. All right, next week we will be back, really next week, with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.